0: I'll be reading from the book of Philemon, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church at your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Do you do you tend to be one that struggles to grant forgiveness to another? Um, have you ever refused to forgive anyone, or are you striving maybe to be forgiven by by someone? Do do you tend to be? Uh, do you tend to hang on to sin or to hang on to struggle for a while, or are you the one that always seems to ask forgiveness first from people? Uh, do you tend to nurse it? And, and kind of stew on it, holding the resentment close to your heart. I'm sure in a room like this, we have people, right now, many of you probably uh, feel hurt and wounded, and, and you feel as if you've been wronged, and the person hasn't repented to you. Or perhaps you feel as though you have been wronged, and you're waiting, you're kind of bitter, you're kind of angry that people haven't responded to you in the way that they should have. Or perhaps there may be some of you that have friends that are out of sorts with one another. And you've said nothing, and you don't know what necessarily to do. Well, you know, this is a, this is a critical issue. Uh, this may be one of the more in important sermons that you're going to hear for a while on this nature of forgiveness and reconciliation. You know We live in a fallen world, and so we are going to sin against others, and others are going to sin against us. And so we need to know how to both grant forgiveness, but also seek forgiveness. I mean, the costs of failing to deal with conflict are significant. I mean, right now, just for a minute, consider your marriages, or consider your parenting, or other relationships that you may have at work, or perhaps even in extended family. What is the level of conflict there? And if you don't know, and if you can't remember, well, you're in good luck. The holidays are coming up, so if you forget, you'll be sure to be reminded of it. But how do we deal (coughs) with this? How do we deal with the conflict and the sense of being wronged by people? Well, you know, we have this book. uh, Philemon has help for us here. Now, a lot of people have asked me, who is Philemon? I think some have been tempted to ask, like, what is a Philemon? As if it's some French pastry or something. But <clears throat> Philemon is a book of the Bible. It's the shortest book in the New Testament, 335 Greek words. And I think because of its size, that may be part of the reason why so many who identify themselves as Christians don't know about the book. They don't know about the presence of the book or even the purpose of the book. <coughs> But this book is, uh, it will be a help to us. It was written by Paul the Apostle to a man by the name of Philemon. Philemon, most feel, came to faith under Paul's ministry, perhaps at Ephesus when he was there for those years. Philemon himself is a leader in the church. He is called a beloved brother. He is, uh, he is a fellow worker. He's a man, as you heard in the first seven verses, a man of, of great and godly character. Now Onesimus, you didn't hear about him, we'll hit him more next week, uh, but we need to know a little bit about him this week. He is a slave to Philemon, a bondservant, and our understanding is that he ran away. Uh, Verse 18, if you kind of read between the lines, it seems that he may have stolen something, he may have mishandled the financial affairs of Philemon, but he's He's on the run away from him, and he runs into Paul in Rome. And there, where he meets Paul, he hears the gospel, and he is converted to Christianity. Now, you want to ask, well, how did Onesimus run into Paul in Rome? Well, we don't know for sure. Uh, One clear answer could be the providence of God bringing lives together. Many of us can testify to that truth. Uh, maybe less dramatic, but no less providential, might be that Onesimus was looking for Paul. Maybe he regretted what he had done. Uh, maybe he was, he was scared and wanted to be reconciled. And so he, he sought Paul out. There was a provision within The Roman law that allowed a slave on the run to seek reconciliation and not be deemed a fugitive or a criminal. Could have been that. But the point of it is, (coughs) excuse me, the point of it is that he came to a sound faith in Christ, this Onesimus, this slave. And we know that because he stays with Paul and he continues to minister with him, as we're going to find. He didn't continue the run, but he stays with Paul. And Paul wants him to be reconciled to Philemon. Paul is uh, a spiritual father to both these men. And These men are now brothers. and Just like any father who had two sons who are, who are at odds would want them to reconcile, so Paul does. And so Paul pens this letter to Philemon seeking reconciliation for Onesimus. Now can you imagine Onesimus traveling all the way back to Colossae with this letter in his hand? Can you imagine what he's thinking? What will he do? How will he, how will he respond? I mean, can you imagine Philemon hearing the knock on the door, opening it, and he sees Onesimus, a slave, carrying a letter of reconciliation from no less than the Apostle Paul? I mean, can you imagine this feeling like the prodigal come home? So Paul is going to be acting as a mediator. He's going to be acting as an ambassador. And he's going to be calling Philemon to welcome this slave, now brother. Now, we'll talk about slavery next week. We'll handle why the Bible seems almost reticent uh, regarding slavery to just outright condemn it. It seems to regulate it more than eliminate it. Uh, But for this week, I just want to focus on the introduction, because in this introduction, Paul is preparing to move on Philemon to make sure that he forgives Anesimus. And he's going to, just in any typical letter of that day, he's going to begin with greetings and praises and prayers and thanksgiving. He's not manipulating Philemon with flattery. He's literally and simply just encouraging him This is what I've seen and heard in your life. Continue to walk in it. You know, that is the point of encouragement. When we give encouragement, it's not just throwing a few attaboys at somebody. You're trying to continue the gracious work that God is doing in their life, that they would continue to walk out as they've been walking out. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's going to encourage them. So we're going to look at Philemon in these seven verses and look at some of his characteristics because they're really building blocks for forgiveness. They're really foundational to granting forgiveness. If these are part of your life, then you are in a better position to be able to understand forgiveness at a deeper level. This isn't a parable. Paul's not giving us principles. It's a personal story. It's a real personal story on how forgiveness is wrought out in the body of Christ. So that's kind of the introduction to this, to this great little book. So three points we're going to make, three foundational stones. The first one is this, that foundational to forgiveness is being plugged into a gospel-centered church. That foundational to our ability to forgive, to being in a posture to forgive, is to being in a gospel-centered church. You notice in the introduction, you see about this church. After Paul expresses who he is, he identifies himself as a prisoner, and Timothy, our brother, and of course he mentions Philemon. Notice he goes to Aphia. Aphia is a feminine name, probably speaking about Philemon's wife, that she's a sister in the Lord. He uses this familial language, that she's part of the new family of God. So there's Philemon and his wife, they're both believers. But then Archippus. Archippus, uh, many think it's Philemon's son. But he's also, he's a fellow soldier. Now, when you see fellow soldier, you get the idea there's something more going on here. And there is, I think, in Colossians chapter 4, uh, Paul actually writes that letter as well. and, And he writes to Archippus and he says for him to faithfully continue in the ministry that he had received from the Lord. So it leads us to believe that maybe Archippus is the pastor of the church at Colossae. So here within Philemon's family, his wife is, if it is the son, if it's a son and the pastor, or at least the pastor of the church. So you see this community kind of gathering. But notice in the addressees that the church is involved. He says, and to the church. Now this is a personal letter to Philemon. The use of the singular is the dominant feature throughout this letter. And yet it's written to the church. The church that's in his house. Now, remember, back then, it wasn't really until the early third century that there were any churches that were specifically, excuse me, there are any buildings dedicated to being churches. In 232-233 is when they think this church in eastern Syria. It was the first known church that we're aware of. Before then, the churches always met either in rented halls, like Paul speaks about, uh, or, or in Open air, or if the church had a wealthy member that they might meet in his or her house or courtyard, and that's kind of the case here, Uh, that that it was the church in Philemon's house. So Philemon was was a leader in the church. It was in his it was you know the church was in his very own house. But here's the question: Why does he write a private letter and include the whole church? Well, I would argue that he wants to go public with this disagreement. He, he wants the church involved in aiding these two people to reconcile. He wants the church to help. He wants the church to be involved. It's not just the leaders that bring about a reconciliation within the conflict of people, but, but it's the people within the church. It's, it's you. And we know that because look in verse 3, when he says, grace to you, that word you is in the plural, so he's speaking still to the church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying to the church, you know about God's grace. I mean, you know about God's grace just like I do. You, You know the unmerited favor. If you've been drawn from darkness to light, if your eyes have been opened to the glory of the gospel and your sin and the need for a Savior, you've had grace given to you. And the same grace that saves you saves me, saves the leadership of the church. There's no difference in grace. We don't have more grace than you have. You're aware of the unmerited, just this freely given mercy of God to you. And what grace leads to is peace, right? You know that grace of God leads to the peace of God. You've been reconciled to God. You once were alienated, you once were fractured, and now you've been restored to God Through Jesus Christ. This is the nature of the gospel. And so the congregation, the church, is as well informed over the grace and the peace of God as the leadership. And so I think Paul's drawing in the whole church. He sees the church as a family. We're a family. You know, in 25 verses, he uses brothers and sisters five times. In just 25 verses. Why? He wants us to understand our mutual responsibility. And if this isn't new to Philemon, your minds might be drawing back to Matthew Matthew 18, where Jesus is speaking about reconciling conflict within the church. If there's a brother that sins, you know that you're to go confront him and to take another brother if he doesn't repent, and then to bring it before the the whole church. The church is involved. Or even in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes that letter to the church at Philippi, And he writes it in the very beginning to the elders and the deacons and all the saints in Philippi, and at the end of, or uh, in verse two in chapter four, he says, "I urge Odia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord." In other words, he's telling the church, he's telling these two ladies in the church that were in a bit of a twist. He says to the whole church, "I urge you, play a role in that." So, so this helps us. It's a foundational stone to be part of a a gospel-centered church. Now, how so? How does it work that you would help in the reconciliation of conflict? Well, Well, number one, you hear the preaching of the Word each week. You hear about the greatness of God, His mercy to us in Christ, about the forgiveness of God. You hear about the desire to be reconciling us to Himself. You hear about the power of God, the glory of God that his arm is not too short, that no matter the conflict that you see, you trust that God is sufficient for it. So you hear about God. You hear about Christ. You hear about his sacrifice on the cross. You hear about his willingness to lay down his life. You You see and hear about the beauty of Christ coming for us, taking on flesh, so that we might be reconciled to God. You hear about the Spirit of God that dwells within the believer, leading to conviction of sin and conversion. And then the Spirit of God continues to work in us, drawing us from glory to glory. You hear about these things, so your hearts are warm to the greatness of God. And if, if God, your Father, is a forgiving God, then you want to be a forgiving child. So, so the, the ongoing work of the Word impacting your soul prepares you to forgive. And, and, and think about it. If you don't hear the word very often, or the people that are not being exposed to the word of God, it's far too easy for them to justify their anger and, and to blame it on circumstances or to blame it on another person or to see a situation as the cause of it. And who's there to argue with them? The word is a mirror to you, showing you and yourself, no matter how you may think, you, when we review ourselves, it's like looking in a circus mirror. We cannot understand ourselves. The Word of God is that perfect mirror revealing to ourselves who we are, bringing us around, humbling us, and making us ready to receive and to extend forgiveness. Not not just the preaching, but communion. When you're here every week and, and so you're here and you're celebrating the Lord's Supper every month, you're reminded this body was broken for you. Don't break it anymore, don't let it remain broken. You hear about the work of Christ to reconcile us to him to himself and to God and, and, and you see the one loaf that his body was broken for us to be made whole. And so even the the ongoing that's why we celebrate communion every month. It's that covenant renewal service. It's a reminder to us of what God has done for us and what we and how are we called to walk before him. But not just not just the preaching and communion, the friendships that you're you're supposed to cultivate the church, because as I said, reconciliation doesn't happen. Conflict isn't always resolved through the leadership of the church; it, it's resolved through you. You know, in Colossians chapter three, sixteen. Well, in Colossians, let, let me remind you that when Paul wrote this letter to Philemon, uh, we believe he was in his first imprisonment in Rome, perhaps in the late fifties, early sixties. And when he wrote the letter to Philemon, he also wrote the letter to the church at at Colossae. He he wrote that letter and the Ephesian letter. And and Onesimus are the ones who carried it back. So Paul had written this letter. So so this church, Philemon's house, is the Colossian church. So they go together. And in Colossians chapter 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. So there's that horizontal responsibility that we have to know the word of God so that we can bring about help in one another's life. And in fact, in just the verse prior, Paul says in the 15th verse, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Why are they together? Because the admonishment and encouragement is needed to keep the peace. And so that's the responsibility that we have. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 9 in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Isn't that beautiful that we, in affecting peace, not peacekeeping, you need a blue helmet for that, I'm talking about peacemaking. Peacemaking is you're you're willing to get into the mix and to bring about needed change in the lives of the saints. Do you have the kind of relationships that afford you the ability to do that? Have you let people into your life to the degree that they can weigh in with encouragement and admonishment? Are you known to the elders? Have you made your life open to them? Uh, Are you cultivating relationships? Perhaps you're new here. Are you cultivating, are you attempting to cultivate relationships with people that may serve you well in the future when you do get in a conflict, that people will know you? And that they will be able to speak to you. You know, if you come here on a periodic basis, if you come here on a periodic basis, not really being known, not really being involved in life of the church, I would submit to you that you're denying yourself a key means of grace which God intends to use to transform you from glory to glory to individualize or to make the faith more cognitive put yourself in great danger you're not known people don't know you do you value these type of relationships do they come with thorns and struggles and problems yes they do but we're going to see at the end of the sermon at the end of the sermon that i think these are instructive for the actual change we're looking for now if you're not a christian here you're maybe here with a friend or you've just become interested in finding out about the faith, who helps you in conflict? Who do you turn to? And what advice can they give you? What transcendent advice? Are they willing to speak to you about the harder things that you may need to hear about the conflict you have? See, this is the beauty of the church. We're people that are humbled and we're all in need of the same grace. And so we have the platform to speak with one another in this. So this is the first foundational stone, that Philemon was in a gospel-centered church. They knew the grace and the peace of God, and so Paul found that to be instructive to preparing the ground to be able to forgive. And that's the point of the letter. Okay, the second foundational stone is that Philemon had a deep faith in Christ. You see that in verse 4 when Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, uh, verses 4 and 5, the wordage on 5 is a little tricky. Is love and faith for Jesus and the saints or is love for... How do those work out? And Scholars explain to us that this is kind of a, a chiastic structure and what that means is just think of a sandwich. You have two pieces of bread and and two slices of meat in the middle. So you have the love and the faith in the Lord Jesus and the saints. So the end posts, the first and the last, are related to one another, and the two pieces of meat are to be seen together. So that way we're not saying you have to have faith in the saints. You have a love for the saints, and you have faith in Jesus Christ. And let me speak to that first, because this is a key foundational stone if you are going to be able to walk in forgiveness with people, uh, that you have a deep faith in Christ. Now, Paul knew that Philemon had a faith because he's the one that probably led him to it. He understood that Philemon grasped the gospel and needed Christ to be reconciled to God. But what Paul's... This is years later now. This is years later as Paul's in Rome, way past the time he ministered in Ephesus. But notice what he says. I've heard of your faith. Faith isn't something you hear very often unless it's active and vibrant and meeting itself out in many good works. He said, I've heard of your faith. Probably from Anesimus, probably from Epaphras. We're going to see him in a couple weeks. But the reality of it is that his faith was continuing on. He was actively walking out. There was no doubt in Paul's mind that he had been born again. He had been filled with the Spirit. He had tasted of the fruit of the divine forgiveness from God in Christ. And anybody who can sip on the forgiveness from God has the ability to forgive other people. And so Paul was confident that with a deep faith in Christ, Philemon will be able to forgive. And that's why Paul states in verse 22, he says, I'm confident that you will do this and more. So Paul was confident that Philemon would be able to forgive because of his faith in Christ. Now, how does faith in Christ lead to forgiveness? Well, if you have faith in Christ, it presumes that you know yourself to be a sinner. If you have faith in Christ, it presumes that you know yourself to need one to deliver, that you know you've sinned before God, that you have not walked in a manner worthy of his gospel, and you know that you've wronged other people. And so the person with faith in Christ, we presume that they understand that they are aware of their fallenness, brokenness, sinfulness, and that's why they've run to Christ for salvation. They can't do it on their own. They're unable to fix the wrongs they've done. They can't reconcile themselves to God. And that's what brings about this faith in Christ. He's my deliverer. He's my savior. He's the one. He is the only one that can reconcile me to God. And so if you understand that, the depth of your own sin, then of course you're going to try to extend it to people. You're going to work to walk in forgiveness with people. This is the story of Matthew 18. Many of you have read that story. It's a parable Jesus teaches. Remember, Peter came up to Jesus and he said, how many times should I forgive my brother? And uh, the standard rule among uh, Pharisees was three times. And Peter says, should I forgive him seven times? So we know Peter's being a bit magnanimous. And Jesus says, no, not seven times. It's 70 times seven. In other words, you aren't to approach the extension of forgiveness as if there is a limit to it, is what he's saying. And then he tells this parable about a king who had a servant, and the servant owed him a debt that was unfathomable. And the servant is brought before the king, and the servant asks for more time. Well, that's a false plea. He could have had 50 lifetimes he couldn't have paid the debt. And so he comes before the king and finally just begs for mercy. In shock of shocks, the king, in utter graciousness, kind of a graciousness we couldn't even understand, forgives all the debt. Now, don't think he just writes it off like a paper loss. The king lost the money. The king is bearing the debt that this man accrued that he is now forgiving. And and so, can you imagine the joy or what you would expect to be the joy of the servant? He leaves the presence of the king and he finds another servant who owes him a paltry little sum. And he says, Pay me back what you owe me. And the second servant uses the same words Give me more time, give me mercy. No mercy was given to the second. He was thrown into the jail. Well, of course, the king now gets wind of the story and calls the servant back and says, you wicked servant. You're a wicked servant. Look at all that I forgave you. And you can't even forgive them this? The moral judgment. You wicked servant, he calls them. That's a mark. You know, when we have a faith in Christ, a true faith in Christ, we forgive. We forgive. You know, Thomas Watson was a great Puritan, and he said these words, he said, we need not climb up into heaven to see whether our sins are forgiven. Let us consider our hearts to see if we can forgive others. That's the test. Do you struggle to forgive? Do you claim a faith in Jesus Christ and then harbor unforgiveness? Is there anybody that you have refused to forgive? Could I hear of your faith in the way that you seek to reconcile the relationships in your life, in your home? Is your faith public in the fact that it's heard, or is it more private? Do your children, does your spouse see you initiate repentance and forgiveness, seeking of reconciliation? Do you, are you the one that's always waiting for your wife to say she's sorry so that you'll be nice to her again? You know, in premarital counseling, I'll always ask the couple Did you ever see your parents ask for forgiveness of one another or you as a child? Did you ever see them pursue reconciliation? There's a conflict in the family. We all have them. Conflict in the family. What happens? Everybody go to their corner and just wait for a couple days? Or is it explosive material? Or did you see them actually pursue reconciliation? You'd be saddened to know that most, most, I would say the majority, I never heard my dad say he was sorry. Never heard my mom apologize to me. Is that true in your home? Because a foundational stone of forgiveness is to know the depth of forgiveness that you have through your faith in Christ. So if we can't forgive those that live within us, then it seems like a taller order to forgive those outside the home. Okay, the, the third stone. So, so the first stone, of course, is if we're going to be a people who can forgive, we're going to be part of a local assembly of gospel-loving people. And then, secondly, we're going to have a, a faith in Christ, a faith in Christ that helps us understand that we've been forgiven much, so now we can forgive. And then the third stone, and this is a little more complicated in a way, it's a deep love for the saints. And you see that again in 4 and 5, that, that Philemon is being credited. Paul is saying that I've heard of your love for the saints. Your love for the saints. Uh, Faith without love is dead. Faith without love is a contradiction. Faith makes its appearance among us by your love of other people. That's how faith is made visible. By the way you love one another. You know, faith, hope, and love, it's the three jewels of Christian virtue. This love is significant that we are to have one another. Practical love for one another. Now, when I say that, I know in your mind you may be thinking, well, Jesus I do love, but the church, eh. I'm not so sure about the church. And I'm sympathetic to that. I I am. I mean, many of you may say, well, the church has let me down. The pastors have let me down. And I don't doubt that, actually. I know that I have been let down, and I know that I've let many of you down. I know that. But the nature of love within the Christian community is a divine gift from God that when God gives new life to a soul, he implants the capacity to love, even in challenging situations. The miracle of regeneration is God moving into the heart, pulling out a heart of stone, placing in it the person, a heart of flesh, a heart that is open to and pulsating with an ability to love God. Now, if this wasn't true, then all the scriptures wouldn't seem to affirm that love is evidence of being born again, right? If God didn't do that, then why would he use it as evidence of being born again? You know, Paul writes to the Roman church in chapter 5, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there you have it. That the born-again person, God's love, not your love or your capacity to love, but this divine love is poured into your hearts through God's Spirit, who has been given to us. This is why in 1 John, in Apostles John 1st Letter, he writes, We know that we've passed out of death to life. You should be asking, Well, how do we know that, John? Well, he says, Because we love the brothers. In other words, our love for one another is the very evidence. It's not a creedal belief alone that should give you assurance. You may believe pure, orthodox doctrine. That is great and necessary. But you've got to love the brothers. Because if this is active and vibrant in your life, this will be as well. Jesus himself said a new commandment, I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. That's the basis of our love. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. So, so that's the key element. That If there is not a love for the saints, then forgiveness is going to be hard to come by. But here's the interesting verse that I want you to look at. If your Bibles are open, look with me at 6, because it's a twisted verse. It's very hard, probably the hardest verse to translate in this entire book. Listen to what Paul writes. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now what does he mean by this? Well, let me explain it because it follows five. I think Paul is saying this. Let me give it to you and then I'll explain it. That as we love one another, we're going to experience the power of God and the grace of God so that we can love. So it's in loving the brethren through practical means that we come to a capacity to forgive. So let me explain it. From this verse, look in 6. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith. Now, sharing of your faith. I don't think he's speaking about evangelism here. I don't think he's speaking about our communicating the truth of the gospel to other people so that they would believe. I don't think he's saying that. I think what he's saying is the the word there is fellowship. Koinonia, perhaps you've heard it. Fellowship or partnership or participation. That, that He's saying that in participating in the faith with others, in sharing in the faith with other people, he says, and that may mean hospitality, it may mean discipleship, it may mean getting into the messiness of someone's life of which you don't know how to get out of it once you get into it. It may mean Just going to the shy person and every week you're going to say, I'm going to go up to somebody who maybe is a little introverted, maybe they're a little uncomfortable. I'm just going to go, instead of going to meet all my other friends that I want to talk to, I'm just going to go and begin to develop friendships with these people. Then after the service, I'm not going to make a a beeline for the door, but I'm going to actively engage those people around me with the hope of the gospel. So this is what he means by sharing in the faith, opening up my life to you, or you to to another. He's saying, I pray that the sharing of our faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So he's saying this, he wants us to grow effective in really knowing, a deepening knowledge of what the joy is of all that we have, the good things that we have in union with Christ. There are good things Promises and blessings that are yours because of your union with Christ. And Paul's saying that it is only in sharing your faith with other people that you find the pathway to the depth of that pool. So you'll know in deeper measure the greatness of God through sharing your life with other people. But this is the rub, isn't it? Because people are messy. And I don't like that person and they're odd and they dress differently, and they act differently. And yet here, Paul seems to say, but that's the way to the depth of the knowledge of the glory of God is through one another in here. It's mind-bending to me. But, you you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran theologian, died at the end of World War II, uh, wrote these words, and I want you to hear these words because many times we come into... Fellowship, and we think that it's supposed to be sweet, without thorns, without struggles. It's just supposed to be easy and clean and nice. And, and, and what that does is it sets us up for a failure. Here's what he says. He who does not abandon, he does not abandon us. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but a God of truth. Only that fellowship, which faces such disillusionment with all of its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Only then does it begin to grasp in faith the promise given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. You can't have Christian community without embracing the fact that there's a great amount of difficulty in it. But it's in the difficulty. This is my point to you. That which has repelled you from engaging has kept you from the deeper knowledge of the good things that are yours in Christ. So to enter it, is to find the good things that are ours in Christ. So how has your faith been expressed in love? How has your love been made loud to us? Perhaps this is a point of confession, that I have avoided people, that I have, or I've only kept my circle nice and tight, it's only these three or four people, but I've got the circle, it's comfortable, I'm good to go now. This is a major challenge. But to walk in forgiveness, this is a key foundational stone. It's being in a Christ-centered community. It's being a person of deep faith in Christ. But it's also being a, a person that's expending and extending themselves into the lives of other people. You know, Paul came to this point, and he gives word to this in Second Corinthians when he says, From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. No one. We're not going to look at one another as we are in the flesh. We're going to begin to look at one another as we will be when we see him, like him. And that moves us past some of the fears and the frustrations of the oddities that every one of us brings to the table of a relationship. So in these seven verses, we see Paul just literally encouraging Philemon. He's preparing him for what we're going to see next week. He's going to ask to welcome him. No longer as a slave, but as a brother. Now try to think in that context. A slave has stolen from you, and he's coming back. Hey, the community reputation's on the line. What people think about you is on the line. What you're going to do is important. But Philemon, by God's grace, has the necessary foundational stones to walk in forgiveness. Do you have these? Are these part and present in your life? Are you plugged into a gospel-centered community? Do you have a faith in Christ that presumes your full knowledge of the depth of your own sin and thankfulness and gratitude over his salvation? And then are you walking in love towards one another in an active, hospitable love, in a sacrificial love? It may involve finances. It will definitely involve time. It will definitely involve and investment in the lives of people that maybe are messier than yours. Is that present? Let's take a minute now and just ask God for grace, even th- that this truth would resonate, kind of reverberate in our soul, and just go to the extent of our being, that we would be a people that, that want to walk in this kind of, of forgiveness and reconciliation.